One of the great uh, traditions of these days is that the last word is really our word together, since I've spoken a lot of words, and um, I want to express my gratitude for the way you involved yourself so deeply and so naturally in reading these poems together and helping us, yeah, <laughs> helping us all understand them better. That's the thing about poetry that you can't, you know, if, if they say you shouldn't drink alone, you shouldn't read poetry alone. You know, poetry needs community because no poet, no poem can be read by one. And a poet never understands exactly what her poem is about. Uh, I discover with my own poems, as I share them with people, that uh, I find the poems in a whole new way because um, that's just the way poetry language is, poetic language is. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Great day. So um, a couple of people have, have brought up some things to talk about. And let me just start off with one, um, which is the whole question of whatever happened to darkness understood in this way in the church. We think of darkness as something evil. Um, the forces of darkness, the heart of darkness, Joseph Conrad. Uh, darkness has been, in modern times, equated with evil uh, and largely disregarded in many religious communities. Certainly in evangelical Christianity, which in some ways helped form me in my early years. So I'm, not, I'm very grateful for my experiences. But there was no room for darkness. There was really no room for failing. And I think that's true of too much religion, not just Christianity, but certainly let's talk about the religion, at least for many of us, is the Christian religion. There's too much of that in our churches or not enough of another message about what it might mean to be in the desert. And this day, in a way, we could have begun with that last phrase of Rilke's, although I don't think we would have quite understood it, for you're the miracle that happened for those who passed through the desert. Darkness is the place where life begins. The womb is a dark place. And I'm reminded of that marvelous encounter, one of my favorite stories of Jesus, uh, encountering Nicodemus, who comes to, when does he come to Jesus? At night. At night to protect him so he won't be seen by others by other Jews, and begins to, he says, you know, Jesus, you're a marvelous man because nobody could do the things that you do if you hadn't come from God. So you, you must come from God. So tell me the secret. That's his message. Tell me the secret. Who are you? What did Jesus say? Very simple phrase. You must be born again, or anew, or from above. The Greek word is, again, is an ambiguous word. It can be all of those things. You have to start again. You have to have a second life. And of course, what does Nicodemus say? Uh, how does this work? Do I have to get back in my mother's womb? What do you, he says, you know, he's taunting Jesus. A good rabbinic kind of back and forth. Rabbi, you know, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't think I can do that. And what does Jesus say? He comes back to him. No, if you, you must be born again, right? And then he describes the wind. Do you remember the description? Those who are born again, and Nicodemus says, I don't know what that looks like. Let me tell you. 
Those who are born again or anew or from above are like the wind, which comes and goes as it will, which comes from a place we can't see and goes to a place we can't know. This unknowing, this, I often think of that scene as a dark scene. It doesn't need to be dark. But there's so much in the tradition, and thank you for raising that question about darkness. We vilify the darkness. In part, it's a natural physiological thing. Darkness can be terrifying. If you've ever lost your way in a, in a deep forest at night with no flashlight, no cell phone with a flashlight on it, whatever, I suppose these days it's almost impossible to imagine, but if you do that, you will shake in your boots. It's a terrifying thing to be in the darkness. And I think it's kind of a natural way of vilifying the darkness then, vilifying black, vilifying darkness, um, and leaving it alone. And I think there's another way of, of seeing this. I think there are racial connotations to that as well, at least there have been in the European uh, North American traditions. That's another story. But uh, there's something about this tradition that's not just important because it's theologically true. I think it is. I think its importance is because it's existentially real. And when we hear this story told, as we've heard it on many layers today, through dance, through painting, these marvelous images of Mark Rothko, through theologians and through poets. Uh, we come, I hope, I hope you leave today with a whole different sense, not just of a way of thinking, but a way of living, a way of looking at your life, of your anxieties, your fears, your wounds, your suffering, and finding there a place where the light will come forth, will come forth, will come forth. Anyway, so thank you for the question. Other comments? Yes. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a Baptist. Um, and therefore, I wasn't baptized as a child. I, I was terrified, actually, of baptism as a little boy because we lived in the South in the United States in Arkansas. And uh, they would have these baptisms on Sunday nights. And I'm remembering this immense, cavernous kind of St. Paul-sized church. I'm sure it was probably no bigger than this. No, there were hundreds of people there. And they would, there was, uh, there was this, this, this place up above the chancel area where the curtain up at night when they have to have baptisms and people would be pushed down under the water and I didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> so anyway, um, was eventually baptized as a Presbyterian, which was the opposite extreme from the terror, which I think is a powerful image of baptism. Actually, now I would say that's a good thing because it is a terrible thing to be. You've seen immersion baptisms. You know, you're held under. And you're brought up, and you're pushed again, and you're brought up, and you're pushed again under the water. And you're struggling for, for air. And I was sprinkled, which I remember, which was not memorable. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I grew up as a Presbyterian. Eventually, um, we moved to the north and joined a congregational church, uh, the United Church of Christ, which is a liberal denomination. It's the church of where Barack Obama became a Christian in the United Church of Christ. Uh, it's a story that, sorry? 
No, he was brought up in a secular house. His mother had no faith in particular. His, his father from Africa, he never really knew. So there was no connection there. Uh, and it's a very powerful story, uh, his story of his own journey into the Christian faith, and very sincere. Um, he joined a church in Chicago, which was uh, started, it was in an area of the city that had become entirely black, and the white congregation finally gave up with 15 members or so who were coming. But a church that seats 800 or 1,000, they have to have five services on Sundays for the congregation there now. Their choir came to sing at a big UCC, United Church of Christ event. Their choir was 450 members strong. That was one of the choirs, the <laughs> minister told me later. Anyway, that's the church that formed Barack Obama that gave him a sense of social justice and spirituality, how these things come together. And that really shaped, where was it, you asked me, that shaped my life profoundly, being in a church that, has, that, that understood itself as a witness to the gospel in word and in deed. So my young life was lived with people who marched with Martin Luther King. I did not uh, as a, I was a child, but our minister did. People in our congregation went south to Selma, to Birmingham, um, and that really shaped, shaped my, my life. So, you know, to have a president now who, instead of on Sunday morning going to church, do you remember where he went his first Sunday? He went to the CIA, which he'd been bad-mouthing for the last year and a half. And his first words, you probably didn't see this. I love you. I love you. It was the most banal moment. They must have just looked at him and thought, what an idiot. Sorry. I love you. Anyway, that's my formation. I eventually was educated, um, took theological degrees more than any human person should ever do. And um, in fact, when, we, when I got my first mortgage, you know, you, I don't know what it's like in Britain, but if you buy a house in the States, they want to know everything about you from kindergarten on. And so there was a line in there, describe your, um, you know, how many years of higher education do you have? So I asked this young mortgage officer, well, I, I don't know, where do you want to begin? Oh, he said, oh, after, it, it did, after, after high school. And I said, okay, I wrote 14. He said, no, 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 not the whole thing. I said, I just meant after high school. I said, yeah, 14. He looks at my salary, which I'd already filled. He says, you went to college and graduate school for 14 years, and that's all the money you earn? <laughs> pretty cheeky, as you'd say here. But it was pretty true. I mean, that's more education than anybody should have. But um, so, yeah, uh, and was ordained in the United Church of Christ. So I'm an ordained UCC minister, and I teach in a Protestant um, uh, college, university in, in Bochum. Is that probably more than you need to know? <laughs> Colorful story. Yes. Very much so. I mean, that, that was part of it. I, when, I, when I got to college, you know, and I had this evangelical experience as a young person, which was really very powerful. It was also lethal. I couldn't stay there. But it was very powerful for me to be around people who deeply believed and who felt that their life depended on this. And I didn't know that. Uh, among people my age in my church. I saw it in the adults, but I didn't see it in, in kids my age. And um, when I got to college, I, I, I wanted to know what the tradition, I, I figured Christianity must be more interesting than what I had experienced. And so that's, I studied church history and earned a doctorate in church history. 
Was it? Yeah. There we go. But um, to me, the tradition is so important. It's not, it's not where all the answers are, but it's where many of the questions are. And what we've done today is to see how this tradition carries into modern culture, modern poetry by a, a, a writer who wouldn't have called himself a Christian. Rilke would not have said, I'm a Christian, as a, even as a young writer. But he takes this tradition and works with the tradition. He knew the tradition from his own experience and from talking with others. And he makes it his own. That's what tradition means. It's the renewing of an ancient seed. It's the carrying forth of an ancient story, but finding new forms for it. And uh, I don't know enough about fresh expressions to have a, an opinion, but it's not just a fresh expression. It's a new expression. It's a real expression of an ancient story, right? So that's, that's my story. Yeah, Josie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that in the morning. That that's very very real. And Absolutely. They never come back. They end up in a psychiatric ward. They jump in front of a train. That's right. And I think that's very real. That's yeah, I mean they're... Absolutely right. That's right. It can be terrifying. That's right. And it can be lethal, in fact. And it's, I think, one reason that there's something almost natural to vilify it, because we can't deal with it. It's too big for us, right? Until you find yourself forced into it, where you don't choose it. We talked about this this morning a bit. I love the dark hours of me. I didn't like them, and I would have chosen them, probably. When Rilke writes, Ich liebe die dunklen Stunden meines Wesens. He means, I've learned what they can bring. No. No, that's right. That's right. That's an excellent point. That's right. That's right. In the darkness, he probably had no words. He wrote bad poetry, actually, as a young person. His poetry is terrible. It's sentimental. You know, it's what, what you do when you're 14 and you have a, and your aunt's written. You write bad poetry that nobody should read. He, he uh, kind of, for his days, self-published these poems as much as you could do that. And he was terribly embarrassed by them later and was trying to find a way to get all the books and destroy them. He didn't want people to know them. But anyway, but thank you. That's an important point and really frames the whole day that this is, it's a dangerous thing to go into a desert. You know, there was a story of a German family, a husband, wife, and their 12-year-old son who walked into the White Sands National Park in southern New Mexico on a June day, and two of them never came out. I mean, it was a different kind of desert. But I've seen pictures of white sands. It's glass-like sand, which radiates 40-degree sun, which you can survive for maybe an hour and a half or two hours. They, they got lost. It's, it's 100 square miles. They got lost, disoriented, heat, heat what do you call it? Heat. Um, Heat stroke. The, the, the little boy survived, but his parents were left behind. So deserts are terrible places. And I think you could translate that line from Rilke or the story from the Exodus 
you're the miracle for those that happened to those who survived. Because not everybody followed, got to the other side, and Moses doesn't, which is one of the most profound parts of the story. He sees it, but he, his dead body is carried over, but he doesn't cross over himself. Yes, yes, it had to happen. I mean, it's probably, is it history? It's true. Who knows if it's history? It's true. It had to happen in the way the story is told. Moses leads people to what they have to discover. He gave his life. He gave his life. It's, a, it's a Jesus story, or Jesus is a Moses story. Right? Yes, he knew. Yes. That's right. He's disobedient. He fails to believe. Yes. Yeah. But he sees. But he sees. But he sees. Yeah. And I think I was trying to kind of find a different way. I'm really, and help me with this if, if you have thoughts about it. It's a different way of thinking about, about the crucifixion. And this image of Grunewald for me has is, is been such a helpful one because it, it doesn't deny the suffering at all. In fact, the suffering is horrible. It's a horrible death. But in the midst of that death, there is a message of light shining forth. And the lamb, if you, if you see the picture as a whole, it's, I mean, what you see, the, where's the, the light here in the prophecy, here in the lamb, here in Mary's mourning clothes, really. M-O-U-R-N, her mourning outfit. You never see Mary dressed in white. It's the only picture I've ever seen, painting, with Mary completely dressed in white. She's always in blue or sometimes with a red undergarment. But here she's completely in white, and her face is completely white. But it's the radiance of this resurrection lamb and the life-giving blood that comes forth from death that is such a sign of hope. To me, the Eucharist is the truth of the, the, the deepest truth of, of this whole mar magnificent story stretched across two testaments, is that death is not the last word, that this death, this saving death brings forth life. And again, it's not a moral version. It's moving away from a moral atonement theory, which I have no interest in. I, I think most people are, are not interested in that. Actually, that's an audacious and ridiculous phrase. And increasingly, I find people who simply don't make sense of that anymore. That we're so sinful and God is so sinless, and so this good sinless God has to die for sinful people. That's the story. It's in the New Testament. It's not the only story in the New Testament. But it's the one that's been the kind of hallmark of this great tradition through the ages. So it's a different way of thinking about the Eucharist about incarnation as the Eucharistic image for us. It brings back to that, that marvelous phrase from Friedrich um, von Hügel. It brings me back to that marvelous phrase of Friedrich von Hügel that all deepened life is deepened suffering, deepened dreariness, and deepened joy. All of those things. And um, the dreariness um, is somehow important in that equation because um, it's not instinctively a story of triumph entering darkness. It is not instinctively, and it can be 
Joseph, as you and others have pointed out, it can be a lethal thing. It can be a horrible burden. Um, there's another part of that story, and I think the artists, I don't know what you thought about Pina Bausch. I wish I could have played the whole thing for you, because I think you would have seen it differently. You have to have 20 minutes of unremitting pounding with rain coming down, drums pounding, frenetic activity of these dark-clad figures who are soaking wet. And then they suddenly almost disappear off the stage, which is very dimly lighted. And this single woman rises forth from the stone. She comes up over the stone like the full moon rising over a horizon after a storm and does this exquisite dance. And did you see what was happening as she's moving across at the very end? What was happening? Somebody comes with chalk. What was he doing? Marking the place where she would be dead, right? What happens in a crime scene? You mark where the body is. And she keeps moving. She refuses to be dead. She refuses to be extinguished, the light to be extinguished. It's an incredible scene. So get a hold of film Pina or when they come to well, um, see if you can get tickets. Yes, there are lots. There are 100 clips on YouTube. Just write Pina Bausch, Vollmond, and you'll get the whole thing. Pina Bausch? Vollmond, V-O-L-L-M-O-N-D, one word, Vollmond, V-O-L-L-M-O-N-D, Pina Bausch. Yes? Why did we stop thinking along these lines? Um, that's a, not a simple question, and I, I couldn't give it a simple answer. But I think as, as the theological traditions entered into the modern experiment, the importance of reasoning things through became very different. It's not that people weren't thinking in the Middle Ages. They were thinking. They were reasoning. But their reason was based differently. So someone like David Hume, if, if David Hume had submitted um, one of his treatises in the century, would have said, I don't understand anything about this. What are these ideas you're talking about? What are these? I don't understand this. Because they were, it was a platonic world of thinking. And that's theology. How do you do theology with that same kind of deep platonic shape without um, making it sound foolish because it easily can sound foolish. That's the challenge. And for me, it's coming from an existential route rather than a kind of analytic route or empirical route or intellectual route that helps us understand this most clearly. That's a simple, that's a great question. And it's a, just a beginning. But... Um, I think irrationality is coming back, and that's not the same thing. I think irrationality can be terribly dangerous. Um, and that's, at least in, in the culture I know best in the United States, there's a deep, irrational, very profound, irrational geist spirit that has infected or inf inflected, let's say inflected, that's a gentler word, probably infected too, but inflected so much of Christian evangelical religion. Uh, the woman that Donald Trump wanted to have give the key prayer is, uh, what's her name, Paula White. She's the gospel of prosperity. If you believe in God, you'll become a millionaire. There are people who watch this 
and give money. Uh, it's, it's a horrible sin. It's a horrible sin. So there is that element that, um, where do the questions start? Why do we stop thinking? Why do we stop thinking? I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's complicated. But um, w w there is a truth in this that's an existential truth, not, a, not necessarily in the first instance, at least for me, something to argue theologically about. There's a great line from John Maine. He was asked once, um, what, do you, what do you get out of meditation? He said, well, you, you don't get anything, but you lose a lot of stuff you need to lose. <laughs> but you don't get anything. You don't gain anything. But there are things you need to lose. 